and they now start. All right. Um, now, there, there's really probably no logical connection that we're trying to form between uh, Hebrews and First Timothy. First Timothy is just the next book that uh, we're going to study, so we'll just shift gears and uh, be able to do that. And uh, actually, I think we can do well by just reading the introduction here to First Timothy and making some comments about uh, the uh, introductory material as we do that. I'm not much on introductions anyway. So, would somebody read uh, verses 1 and 2? Paul, an apostle of Christ, of Jesus Christ, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. Okay. Um, Thirteen books in the New Testament start with the name Paul. There's a logical reason for that. That's the way they began their letters usually, was with their own name. And especially because these were written in scroll, on scrolls. And uh, you ever read a letter not knowing who wrote it? You know, so logically, if you would have to unravel the whole scroll to get to the bottom of it to find out who wrote the letter, you'd start with the name of the writer. Um, and that's what they did conventionally. So this was written by Paul. Um, now, he's writing this to Timothy. Um, what was the connection between Paul and Timothy? Close. Uh, extremely close. He calls him his own child of the faith here, because how much time had they spent together? A lot. A lot. I mean, Paul picked him up on which journey? Second. Second journey. And he traveled with Paul the second, the rest, most of the second journey, really, and third journey. And there, this is maybe somewhat debatable, but I think likely this book was written probably after Paul's first imprisonment. Um, Because we'll see in verse 3, he leaves Timothy in Ephesus as he departed from Macedonia. Um, And I think it's most logical to assume that that was something that occurred after his imprisonment in Rome. So something occurred after the book of Acts. And that means that this was written to Timothy many, many years after he had begun traveling with Paul on the missionary journeys. Something in the ballpark of maybe 15 years after that. Which I often make the point when I'm talking about Timothy, some of you have heard me make this, but you look at 4.12 where Paul tells Timothy, let no one look down on your youthfulness. Timothy was still, still could be looked down for his youthfulness 15 years after he started accompanying Paul. How, how old must he have been when he started going on those missionary journeys with Paul? You know? And even the, the last book Paul wrote, we think, 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.22, now flee from youthful lusts. And that was written, you know, uh, maybe a couple of years after that. I mean, that may have been written maybe 16, 17, 18 years after Paul started, uh, you know, taking Timothy around with him. That, that really uh, is amazing, A, that Timothy went on these dangerous missionary journeys at a very young age. After all, Timothy was from what city, probably? <coughs> Put some passages together to get this. Probably Lystra. Remember what happened to Paul the first time he got in Lystra? Stoned. Thought he was dead. So... I don't know if Timothy saw that, but I'm sure he would have known about it. You know, next time that guy comes through, you're going to start accompanying him, you know, at a young age. And on that very second journey where he starts with Paul, during that journey, during the course of that journey, Paul will send him back up to Thessalonica, from best we can tell by himself, to comfort and strengthen the brethren about the faith. And I think almost undoubtedly no more than a teenager. Maybe no more than a mid-teenager if he was still a youth some 15 to 17 years later. Um, So that's just an interesting feature of this. And it really means Paul had had a close personal relationship with Timothy from the time he was a very young man. 
And we remember about Timothy's father, don't we? He was a Greek. He was not a believer. So you can imagine the the kind of bond Paul established with Timothy, kind of a father-son type of bond. Now, I said all of that sort of out of uh, chronological order here in in 1 and 2, because it's interesting to me how Paul identifies himself in uh, this introduction. What does Paul say about himself? He's an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, saying he's an apostle, that... That's something that Paul mentions in the introductions of nine of his 13 letters. Not everyone, but a lot of them. But saying his apostle is really saying what? This is a, this is sort of like a formal letter. Yes. If he's an apostle, then this writing has what? Authority. Authority. He's writing as a representative of the Lord. And he doesn't just say he's an apostle. What does he say about his being an apostle? According to the command of God. Yes. He was not a self-appointed apostle. He was an apostle by the command of God. He's under orders from God to be an apostle. Now the thing that strikes me as strange is, why would Paul tell Timothy this? Not only tell Timothy he's an apostle that surely Timothy knew well and completely was convinced of, but even to emphasize Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. It sounds like he's really um, almost, uh, I don't know, insisting on his authority. Why would he do that writing to a Timothy? Somebody else was going to read the letter. I think so. And in fact, you might notice the very last phrase in 1 Timothy. Grace be with you. You know in English we have a problem. Our word you is ambiguous. And therefore, what have we done in English to avoid the ambiguity? If you're in the south, what do you use? Y'all. If you're in the north, what do you use? You guys, youans, or whatever. Uh, not not here in the north, but more east of here. That's, that's West Virginia, that sort of area. Uh, but you folks, you people, you know, we do something because we really need to know whether the you is, you know, singular you or plural you. Uh, it's really a problem. You know, Portuguese doesn't have that problem, and a lot of other languages don't. Nor did Greek. This is the you all, you. Grace be with you, plural. That's interesting. It ends a book written to Timothy with grace be with you all. So I think Paul intended for more than just Timothy to read this letter. I think that's exactly right. And what we're going to read in this the first paragraph after the introduction is that God left Timothy in Ephesus to deal with false teachers who I think were probably challenging the apostolic authority, or at least Timothy's authority, and that Paul is writing this letter to him to sort of strengthen his hand to deal with these false teachers. He's going to be able to show them that Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, says these things. It's not just him saying it, and it's going to give him a little more forcefulness in, in rebuking these false teachers and silencing them. That's what I think. I just want to point out that some of the versions that I have in this parallel Bible say, uh, all of you or you all. Yes, good. Yeah, because they're just trying to make sure we understand that was the plural you. Yeah, good point. It, it really is a problem for us in English. That's, uh, you know, I always like to uh, down English when I can because sometimes we always down other languages, you know. But, you know, our language isn't perfect either. So, um, He's writing to Timothy, his true child of the faith, and what does he wish for him? Three things. Grace, mercy, and peace. Grace, mercy, and peace. It's more commonly in Paul's writings what two things? Grace, Grace and peace. peace. That's more common the grace, mercy, and peace, I believe, is only in First and Second uh, Timothy. But it's it's always that order. You almost never find peace and grace. It's almost always grace and peace, or grace, mercy, and peace. And you know why that is. 
Mm, yeah, the grace is more the Gentile greeting, the peace is more the Jewish greeting, but I don't know that that's the reason for the order. You can't have the peace without the grace. Yeah, absolutely. The peace is the outcome of the grace and the mercy. You get those first, and that leads you to having the peace with God. And he unites Father and Son together as the source of grace, mercy, and peace, as they were the source of his apostleship. Um, notice one more thing here, uh, and that is, um, <coughs> how many times in this in these two verses does Paul mention his own name? Once. And Timothy's name? Once. And God? And Jesus? Three times. Isn't that interesting? Just even in an introduction like this, you can see Paul's God-centeredness. You know, he's much more focused on the Lord than he is on himself as a person or on Timothy as a person. I'll tell you, if we were only like that, if even in the introduction to a letter we said more about the Lord than we did about ourselves and the person we were writing to, you know, it would reflect just much more of a God-centered thought that you constantly see in some of my thoughts. Alright, comments or questions on verses 1 and 2? I just figured they were in alphabetical order. <laughs> 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 Paul was pretty astute that way. Yeah. <laughs> Portuguese words are similar. Their words would also start with GM and P for those three, so whatever that, wherever, whatever that's worth. You didn't really need to know that. It reminds me, you know, we need a little comic relief. It reminds me of, um, of my uh, Greek class in uh, college. Um, yeah, and really reminds me of the next year. I wasn't in there, but I heard all about it. It was really funny because my Greek teacher, he's a good Greek teacher, but he knew German as well. And so every once in a while, he would just, now in German, it's whatever, <laughs> not under German, or really cared, but, you know, he just enlightened us with that. Well, the next year after I took it, they said there was a guy in there who knew French really well. And so he would often, after the, getting the, the Greek and the German, he would say, well, I'm French, they do it this way. Well, there was a practical joker in there who he would then often add his comment, well, in Swahili, you know, it's uga, 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 whatever. And uh, a couple of you guys know who that uh, Swahili guy was. That was Scott Smelser. <laughs> so you can, you can ask him about that the next time you see him. You should be here in August. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, he'll be at the recharge weekend, I think. So you can ask him about what he knows about Swahili. <laughs> Anyhow, that really doesn't help. Timothy, but... Uh, Alright, 3 to 7, 1 Timothy 1. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than the furthering, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussions, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying, or the matters about which they make confident assertions. That is a mouthful. There is a lot in that paragraph that I think is really helpful for us. Um, now, normally when Paul wrote letters, it is most common for him, right after the introduction, to have a paragraph in which he reports what? What would he normally say right after something the... Something good about them. Yeah. Something good about them. How would he usually say that, though? What the Lord had done, or... Yeah. I, I thank God for I you thank... and all my blood and all yes. my prayers for the... This, it... that, and the under that you've done. Exactly. 
And that's so common. That's my paraphrase. That's Romans, that's 1 Corinthians. Thank you for that. That's Philippians, that's Colossians, that's uh, uh, just most of them. I guess First and Second Thessalonians and, and so forth and so on. That, that's the common way Paul does that. So it's interesting that he deviates from that pattern here and does not have this thanks section, at least not right here, really doesn't exactly, period. He will thank God later, but not quite for the same thing. Um, why would Paul um, plunge right into his subject here and not have this, I thank God for you, or maybe I thank God for the Ephesians among whom you're working, or whatever? partially would be because of his intimate relationship with Timothy. He got straight to business. Yes, maybe so, although he in Second Timothy, he does, I thank God whom I serve. So, you know, he will sometimes with Timothy. I think there may be another reason he got straight to business. What do you think to thank him for? <laughs> Could it be urgent? Yeah, I think so. I think he sees there's a crisis right here. And he needs to deal with that. There's not a whole lot maybe to thank God for among the Ephesians right now. Certainly could probably. Um, it reminds me of some other letters where Paul didn't do that. Uh, there's two notable letters in which Paul did not have a thanks section just like he does not here. Can you think of what those are? Galatians! What does he do with the Galatians? I'm amazed. Yeah, that you are so soon <laughs> departed from the grace of God and all that for this perverted gospel. I mean, he was horrified. I'm not sure he had a whole lot to thank God for on the behalf of the Galatians. They weren't doing well. And he just immediately deals with that. I mean, it's like, have you ever just been so concerned about something that you almost just did away with, you know, polite niceties and small talk and whatever, and you got right down to business, because it's just so serious. I mean, sometimes you may have something to say, but you're willing to chat a while before you say it. But sometimes it's just too serious for that. You don't waste any time. You immediately jump into what you've got to talk about. There's another letter <coughs> in which Paul immediately addresses the subject and doesn't have a thanks section. Titus. Titus. And why in Titus? Well, he kind of starts out the exact same way. He talks about the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished. At, which included the appointing of the elders because of the false teaching and corrupt uh, corruption there in Crete. Exactly. So I think this is a real crisis. And I think the fact that Paul immediately deals with this shows that he's very concerned about this and he'll come back to it over and over again in First Timothy. And it's just exactly what he had urged Timothy when he left for Macedonia, when he told him to stay at Ephesus. Now he's going to come back to that thought in verse 18. He kind of, he kind of starts out with that and he sort of deviates. And we're going to come back to the idea of why Paul left him there and what he's to do. But here he points out that one of the reasons he left him there was to do what in verse 3? instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Yes. What men? What who these guys were? Why doesn't he uh, maybe like give some names right here? He does later. He does mention a couple of them later. Uh, 120 he mentions a couple not sure whether these two in verse 20 were uh, in Ephesus or not. Maybe they were. Maybe they were with Paul. But he doesn't mention many names, and he mentions none right here. I've heard you say this before. Does not call attention to the person. Gives it more credence if you give him a name. Yes, I think that part of it, he doesn't grant them any standing at all, not even by giving them names. You know, it, 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 it's kind of like, a, you know, political advertisements, there's a calculated risk when an ad names your opponent because it gives him more name recognition. You know, you don't, sometimes they'll do it, but it also may have a backlash. 
but 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 sometimes they don't do it just because they don't want people to think about the name of the opponent. They want their name before the person. You know, so in a sense, this is sort of he's not even going to dignify them by naming them. In fact, I've wondered if this expression certain men is kind of a negative expression. Instruct certain men. You know, if that's not kind of, sort of, kind of a downer kind of a phrase in and of itself. I think that may be the case. But there's another reason, too, I think, why, well, let me ask it this way. Are there any other books besides First Timothy in which Paul deals with false teachers? <laughs> the easier to cite the books where he doesn't, wouldn't it? You know, in almost all of them he does. How many of the books does he name the false teachers in? Who were the false teachers in Galatia? Who were the dogs in Philippi? Who were the false teachers in Colossia in, the, uh, in Colossae? Who were the who were the intruders in Second Corinthians? You know, and so forth and so on. You can even look at other New Testament books. Second Peter. Who were the false teachers that Jude? You know, First John, Second John. You know. Um, now, do you suppose that's because the New Testament writers just didn't want to offend anybody by naming the names of these false teachers? No, I don't think that had a thing to do with it. They did occasionally. I don't think that had anything to do with not wanting to offend them. But I do think there's a practical reason not to name them. What if Paul had said this? As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on in Ephesus, so that you may instruct John, Joe, and Tim not to teach strange doctrines. Now, if he had said that, do you see a weakness with that? Well, it's limiting. It's limiting! When, when Mark starts teaching false, you, you can't say, well, Paul said don't teach that. It's just John, John, and Tim. Exactly! Because the point is not who teaches it, the point is what's taught. False teaching is solved on the basis of principle, not personality. And one of the problems with getting everybody to know the names of the false teachers is if, the, if another one comes along with a different name, they don't know they're wrong. It's so much better to teach people the truth and the error based upon what is taught than they'll recognize it no matter what name it is the person goes by who teaches it. I think that's really the reason, and I think that's a superior way to do it. I think brethren sometimes are more interested in making sure everybody knows the names to avoid than knowing the teaching to avoid. I'm not against giving names. I don't think there's some terrible thing done if you say, brother so-and-so is teaching the wrong things. And Paul does do that occasionally. But I think if all you get is people knowing the names to avoid, they're going to be vulnerable to false teaching by another person. So Paul typically does it, and here it's just teach, instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Thoughts or comments about that? Could it also be that Timothy knew who these men were? I well, mean, that's, that's like another obvious <coughs> I think he did. And uh, I think by teaching clearly the truth, anybody can just listen to what they say. And look at that phrase, strange doctrines. What do you mean by strange doctrines? Uh, one that they hadn't been taught by him. Yes. The <clears throat> teaching of the apostles was like the standard, the norm, by which all other teaching should be measured. So a strange doctrine is one that deviates from the norm. Any teaching that's different is strange. Um, and so there should not be newfangled teachings. <laughs> the truth is what they have learned from the source, from the Lord, from the apostles. Um, you know, in our generation... Uh, there's no such thing as objective truth. You know, there's no norm. There's no right and wrong. We live in a pluralistic age, if you know that term. If you don't, if you still know the idea. Everything's okay. You know, what's truth for you 
it may not be truth for me, it may not be truth for somebody else, everybody's kind of got their own truth, everybody's got their own standard. New Testament writers didn't see it that way. They saw a standard, and anything that was different was wrong. Because how could something not from God be as good as something from God? Here's the teaching from God, anything else doesn't line up and it's wrong. So he, he was there in Ephesus, left there to teach these certain men. They weren't supposed to teach those strange doctrines, those doctrines and teachings that were not from God. Now he, he sort of specifies those in verse 4. What did they involve? Myths, genealogies. Yes. Uh, things they made up, you know, their own uh, ideas, myths, and, and endless genealogies. Apparently they could have gone on and on with those without it really ever saying anything. I don't know what they thought their genealogies were doing or what genealogies these were, but evidently they were giving some significance to uh, genealogies that had nothing to do with the gospel. And uh, maybe this is Jewish in some way. Uh, I think there's some, some things that might indicate that later on in the letter as well. Uh, but they weren't from the, the norm of apostolic teaching. Now, he makes a really good point in 4, 5, and 6 also that I think is really valuable for us. What do the false teachings lead to in verse 4? Mere speculation. Yeah. In other words, what? Worthless. Yeah. Worthless arguments, worthless ideas that don't help any. You know, they just kind of turn people aside from the truth. He says, rather than the administration of God, which is by faith. You know, these false teachings, are they don't build you up. It's kind of like, um, I don't know, you know something about nutrition. You know, um, oh, I don't know, <coughs> really empty nutritionally. You know, I guess we think candy bars, don't we? You know, yeah, yeah, that's a good thing. You know, how much nutritional value is in, you know, uh, soft drinks. You know, we call them just sort of empty calories. <clears throat> you know, they just don't really build you up. They don't really give you anything. Some sugar. You know, and and that's kind of the way these false teachings were. You know, they, 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 they didn't really build you up. They don't give you any nutrients. They don't really, you know, they don't make you healthy. Uh, God's Word does. Um, in fact, he says in verse 5, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. You know, true teaching has real <clears throat> practical value. It will lead to sincerity and purity. Um, I think that's an interesting thought. I mean, God's word is going to accomplish something worthwhile. False teachings aren't. Comments and thoughts as we're going through this. I felt like the way the uh, in, the ESV puts it in verse six. It says certain certain persons by serving the by swaying from these have wandered away into vain discussion. Yeah, it's empty. You know, people are going to argue forever about some of that garbage. Doesn't do a bit of good. It's not. It's not profitable. Um, think about this idea of the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And take those one at a time. We'll start at the end. The sincere faith. Look at the false teachers in one nineteen. What have they done with their faith? So, sincere faith versus shipwreck faith. Or the good conscience. But look at 4.2. What have they done with their conscience? <coughs> seared it. So you have the good conscience versus the seared conscience. Or you have the pure heart. Now look over at chapter 6 and verse 5. 
what had they done with their heart slash mind? What was it? Depraved. depraved. So you have the pure heart versus the depraved mind. You see how the false teaching leads to just the opposite. The truth, that'll give you love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And the problem was that these false teachers had strayed away from these things. They'd strayed away from purity of heart, a good conscience, sincere faith, and having strayed from those virtues, they went into false teaching. Now I think that's a very helpful thought. They did not follow false teaching because it was intellectually more seemed more right to them intellectually. They veered aside because they abandoned love from a pure heart and a good conscience. <coughs> you leave the, the sincerity and the purity and the love of Christ and you'll go into false teaching. You'll go into false doctrine. We so often that, well, you know, somebody just didn't understand very well. He just wasn't very smart. He had a hard time figuring it out. You know, he just kind of got misled. But the teachers, at least, the reason for them being misled is moral, not intellectual. They hate the light because their deeds are evil. They, don't, they, they, they turn aside to false teaching because they have turned aside from the purity of heart, the good conscience, and their faith. Does that make sense? I think it's really helpful for us. And I think it is the key to not straying into a false teaching. The, the key to that is going to be that we keep our heart pure, that we keep living right, that we keep a good conscience. Um, because if we don't, then we'll, we'll fall into error. And so they turn aside to fruitless discussion. It's, it's, you know, talked a lot. Didn't do a bit of good. And look at verse 7. They wanted to be teachers of the law, but what? They didn't understand it. Yeah, they don't know what they were talking about. Did that stop them? They made plenty of confident assertions, despite their ignorance. Someone has said that... Uh, Men often yell the loudest about that which they know the least. <laughs> Isn't that true? Kind of reminds you of uh, no, uh, you know, um, no offense, but it kind of reminds you of like a, a young teenage boy. You ever noticed how they are? You know, uh, well, you're you're a mid teenage boy now. Uh, you notice how Josh is? Uh, no, you. Uh, you ever seen a kid? Kyle was so much like this. You know, he was just, you know, he had learned something, but he had no perspective. So often, with a little bit of knowledge, he would make extremely confident assertions that were totally wrong. You know, it was kind of funny every once in a while, because he sincerely, he would believe, but he just knew just a little bit. And so it was like, Kyle, <laughs> you may be sure of that, but you're completely off on that. You know, and I think that's pretty typical. You see that, you know. But, you know, hopefully uh, we learn, we mature, and we develop a little bit more perspective. And, and we tend to um, moderate our confidence some in areas where we have less certainty. <laughs> and we kind of gain a little bit more depth about us. Uh, but these false teachers... They didn't know anything, but they sure could, uh, you know, uh, speak loudly. Someone has said they announced their errors with the stubborn assurance born of ignorance. I thought that was a good, good line. You know, the less you know, the more stubborn you can be about it. Uh, and, and, and really, you know, you stop and think about it. Uh, in some ways, those who know very little tend to be very confident. Think about Christians who've been Christians for a long time and studied very deeply. They tend to be less confident about some things. They would tend to be more moderate in some points because they have more depth. They've studied more deeply. Typically, we would associate 
brashness and overconfidence with somebody who doesn't know as much. It, we wouldn't normally think of a brash, very well-studied, deep individual. They don't tend to be that way. Well, that was a lot of talking. Uh, comments and thoughts through verse 7. It also shows other things about the person. Humility and a few other things. If you're making confident assertions that you're that you don't know what you're talking about, it's for some other reason. You're afraid you're going to lose your audience. You you want the attention or the notoriety. Whereas if you don't care about those things, you're willing to say, I don't know, or <coughs> not have to be so confident. It's interesting. It says long before Christmas, saying they wanted to be teachers. Yeah. You know, what, what drove that? And... Um, you know, Paul talks about some who preach Christ just out of envy. You know, they, they wanted to cause him trouble as a result. But their goal, their their drive for teaching wasn't the glory of God. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, it kind of makes you wonder at times, why does somebody want to be a teacher? Yeah. Um... What what would be a reason why somebody would want to be a teacher? Do you get more attention if you teach? People notice you. People tend to respect you. All eyes are on you. So, if we're teaching, what do we need to think about? Material. Responsibility. God. Amen. Yeah, I mean, wow. That that is a danger, I think, when we teach or when we are in front of people. That we may want to for the wrong reason. And even if we didn't, we may come to that point. That's one of the reasons why um, later on in this book, Paul will say, Don't appoint a novice as an elder. So it won't be lifted up with pride. Um, sometimes we need to be careful that we do not assume um, roles that give us a lot of attention too quickly. Um, and I think it's a reason why we need to be careful about what we say to teachers and preachers. Sometimes we're too quick to praise them. And that can really be hard to listen to and maintain the proper focus. So I think we need to be balanced about that. <clears throat> but that is a good point. They, they wanted to be teachers. That uh, Not that they wanted to help others learn. They wanted to be teachers. And, and they wanted to be teachers of the law. Which, I mean, I read that and I think they wanted to be teachers of the old law. Which may not be correct, but it's just kind of an odd. I, mean, I, I get the idea of of some type of a a Pharisee or a Sadducee who still wants to be able to strut his stuff. I don't know. That may be. Um, I'm not sure. That's worth thinking about, at least. Beginning talking about not mentioning their names. Uh, have you ever heard uh, Paul Harvey do that? Oh, yes, that's a good point. Somebody will pull some stupid stunt, and he'll tell what they did, and, he, and then at the end he'll say, and they would want me to mention their name here. <laughs> Just pause and, and go on. And that's he would say, and then he would go on. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I like that. He's done that several times. Yeah. That would just give them attention, or somebody would go look them up or something like that. Yeah, I had thought about that with them, but that's exactly what he does. And that's always kind of clever what he does. Yes. Because that's exactly why they do that. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I mean, that just serves a right. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I like that too. I've always liked hearing him do that. Because it usually is some totally ridiculous thing somebody did strictly for attention. Uh, mm -hmm. So when, when did he leave him at Ephesus? Is he talking about current time or when they were 
there earlier? <laughs> no, I think he's just left him. I think he's sending the letter back, having recently left him at Ephesus while he went on to Macedonia. Something we don't have another record of that event. I think that. not, because I think it was after Acts was concluded, after he was right. released from prison. I can't figure out another time when this would have happened very well. You know, it doesn't. When else would Paul have done this? This was his fourth missionary journey. Yeah, yeah he's still missionary missionary journey. Well, yeah, I think it probably was. Yeah, because I mean, he didn't even go to Ephesus on the first journey. Right. Second journey, he left Aquila and Priscilla behind, and there wasn't even a group there then. Third journey. He was there for two years or three. It hardly seems to me that he would have left Timothy behind at that point. I think no evidence that he did. He'd have been there for two or three years himself. Why would he have left Timothy to deal with that? Why didn't he deal with it at the time? And even when he comes back there at the end of that, he's warning the elders about the possibility of false teachers coming in. But it doesn't seem like there's so much there yet. And he's imprisoned after that. I, this is one of the books that makes us think that Paul must have been released from prison. Because it's just really hard to figure out where else to place this if it wasn't after that. You see him dealing with Titus and dealing with Timothy, and he's on the move. In situations just, yeah. that don't seem to fit into the book right. of Acts and the missionary journeys. Right. Exactly. So you, you slide it past that yeah. and say he's on the move again, you know, Yeah. and these are, these are closing out. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what, you know, you read in your introductions that tell you all this stuff. That's how they do it. We're just looking at the evidence inside the letters. A little bit sometimes historical tradition, but mostly (laughs) the evidence inside the letters and saying, this seems to fit best in this. And so, um, I I agree. I I don't, this this seems certainly more reasonable to me than than trying to figure out some way this would have fit into the book of Acts. I just don't see where it would have. Other thoughts and comments on these first seven verses? Is this related to the problem at all then that they're addressed later in Revelation? Is this addressing any of that? Well, that's interesting. You have Paul in Acts warning the elders about the false teaching that's coming. You have him in the book of Ephesians written from prison teaching pretty clear stuff about the Jew-Gentile law, gospel sort of thing. Then a little later you have him him leaving Timothy to really solidify them on the false teaching business. And then I think later than that, maybe several years later than that, Jesus writes the note in Revelation and in Revelation the situation is different. What he writes to Ephesus in Revelation would indicate that what about their attitude toward false teaching? They were very strong on that. I think Timothy done his job. I think they had firmed up on that point and he commends them strongly for putting to the test those who called themselves apostles but were not and for hating the deeds of the Nicolaitans that were troubling, say, the church of Pergamum. Um, but by the time, you know, Jesus speaks to them in Revelation, what was the Ephesian problem? They'd almost gone overboard. It appeared they went to <clears throat> to the extreme of doing those things, but they forgot why they were doing them. They left their first love. Yeah, I'm not sure that's so much an extreme, but I think it is what right. we sometimes do. We can be straight doctrinally, but we do it just sort of mechanically, or just to be right and not because we love God. And I wonder, here's what, I mean, I don't know, this is Revelation, not First Timothy maybe, but, but if we're saying that Revelation was written some 20 plus years after the gospel came to Ephesus, or maybe 25 or 30 years after, then who would be in the church at Ephesus? The second generation. The people who are converted out of the world don't as commonly lose their first love. They always remember, you know, what it was like in the world and how glad they are God's rescued them. 
But the kids who grew up in the household where they always went to church, they always worked with the Lord's Supper, you know, they always did their Bible lesson, you know, they always said their prayer before the meal. It's awfully easy for those kids to just do it as a mechanical habit. You know, we just, well, we always went, we were always Church of Christ, you know. We just always went, we always went three times a week, I guess we'll just keep doing it. And we'll just keep, and you know, you always have to clean the building, you know, every once in a while. And you always have to do this, and you always do that. You know, you kind of have your routine set. Our family did it, we do it. So you keep working even. You keep doing things, but you really love God. You don't have any real personal conviction or heart for God. It's just more, this is what good families do. This is what my parents taught me, so I keep doing it. That's the danger. And that's why, you know, young people have to come to personal conviction and love for God. <laughs> they can't just do it because their parents said it. They've got to question everything, and they've got to come to develop their own heart for God and their own appreciation for God, not just inherit the family system. That's what I see. Amen. Obviously, in the Old Testament, you teach teach, teach, you know, teach them, not just show it, not just, not just live it and then have them imitate it, but in our parenting class we went through, it was the same thing, the point is to win the heart, you can get obedience, you can dictate obedience, but you've got to win the heart, and it's the same thing with, with well, and exactly, and you think about the things that were said, in the law and in Joshua and so forth. What were they supposed to teach them? What about, you know, like when the Passover came around or when they saw that pile of stones and things like that? What were they supposed to teach them? What the Lord had done to them. Exactly! Don't teach them, well, here's the rules about the Passover. You know, you have to observe it at such and such a day and you have to do it this way and blah, 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 blah. Now, that's what we would tend to do. We would tend to teach the rules about the Passover observance. But no, you tell them what the Lord did in rescuing you out of Egypt. That's what you tell them. Now, you, you teach your children what God has done, and they come to love God. You teach them how to do it, and they come to know how to do it. Isn't that true? That's done a lot today with the Lord's Supper. We yeah. teach the rules, and when it has to be, and, and all that stuff, and forget why we're even doing it. Well, absolutely. I made the observation a number of years ago. I, uh, I was in a succession of three churches sometime uh, earlier in my life for a period of time. And the first church, when people spoke about the Lord's Supper, we almost always discussed how often we should be partaking. The second church was an, uh, an advance on that. We usually discussed the method of partaking, the proper way of partaking. But the third church, we usually discuss the Lord's death and his suffering and what he did for us. Now it seems to me like that was superior. It's not that there's not something the Bible says about the frequency of partaking and we ought to think once in a while about how we ought to do it. But what Jesus said is do this in memory of when you should partake. No, he said do this in remembrance of me. You know, what we ought to really be thinking about with the Lord's Supper is not the mechanics of how we do it, but we ought to be thinking about the Lord. That's what this is supposed to be all about. And I think that, you know, in some places needs to be thought about more. Because that's exactly what we do. And it makes you think, what are we thinking? We are thinking, well, what's the details about how to get it right? We're not thinking about the Lord that gives the whole meaning and purpose behind it. And so we're not really getting it right. <laughs> Comments and thoughts? Kind of, kind of like the Jews hanging on to the, to the methodology and the, and the, 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 the checkbox, you know, versus the grace of God. And, and they were his children. People, what all he had done for them versus, you know, here's how you make him happy. You do this and this and this and this and this. And this. All the emphasis on the sacrifices and every detail about the sacrifice and God and the prophets was repulsed by those very sacrifices because they didn't live right. They didn't offer it out of sincerity, but they got those sacrifices, bought those animals. You know. You didn't even mention the detail. You know, it, it, oh, you you did it perfectly. 
you know, in all the right order and the right amount of blood and all that. The whole thing was worthless. He didn't care what, how they did it. Because it wasn't their life. Exactly. There's so much to see when you look at the Old Testament about those things. We are just like them. We have the same struggles. We go through the same, you know, tendencies. So there's a lot to just think through in that. So, is there is there anything else? You know, you talked about the difference between three different groups of Christians that you observe that maybe made the observance of the Lord's Supper more of the event than it ought to be. Is there more that we ought to consider as well? Certainly. I mean, you know, virtually everything is, I mean, you know, we can do things just out of the habitual routine and focus on the rules themselves and not on the reason for doing it. You know, it's, it's the difference between, you know, the Pharisees. The Pharisees, all they thought about was the rules and how to get the rule right, but not about the Lord. You know, and, and here's what happens. And here's what you see in our generation. How do people react against a religion that's based upon the rules divorced from the Lord? Well, they go to the Lord divorced from the rules. They go to the opposite extreme. Neither one of those are right. We need to look to the Lord, and because we love God, then we're careful to do exactly what he says. But not just because that's the mechanism, but because we love God. And that, it, and that, that challenge, you know, it's not just, well, as long as you have a warm feeling in your heart about the Lord, it doesn't make a difference what you do. <coughs> well, that's not true at all. But just being concerned about getting right what you do without knowing the Lord, that's also barren and empty. It needs to be God-centered, Jesus-centered, focused on Him, and because we really love Him, and we really trust Him, and we really care about Him, then we seek detailed obedience. But detailed obedience for the purpose of glorifying Him, not just for the purpose of getting the details right. I think there's tons of applications for that. You know, we do that in a lot of things. You know, I don't know what examples you want to bring up. But I mean, you know, maybe here's one. This kind of you know, could be a little shallower. But, you know, all the time growing up, when it comes to qualifications of elders, you know what qualification an elder must have? Wants the, wants it. Yeah, well, it's hard. Yeah, sometimes that's the one. Uh, but what, what's the qualification we usually place, spend the most time, you know, emphasizing? Children. Believe in children! Yeah. I, I, you know, I was in a church one time. It was an older man, a, a fine man in many ways. But uh, the church didn't have elders, didn't have anyone qualified to be elders. He spoke up in business meetings. He said, you know, I think it's about time we have elders. And he said, you know, we need to appoint so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. They have believing children. <laughs> or something along that line. Now, do elders have to have believing children? I believe they do. What have we done with those qualifications? If all we think about is, well, do they have any children who've been baptized? <laughs> you know, there's a bunch of other things that passage says that are not as easily quantifiable. And we tend to ignore those. You ever heard much discussion as to whether or not the uh, candidate was prudent or just or sensible or a lover of good? or uh, not quick-tempered, or not greedy, and so forth and so on. Those are every bit as much qualifications as having believing children. But people who become mechanical think in terms of what they can quantify. <laughs> we can count up the children. We can't count up, you know, how, uh, you know, uh, they're being a lover of money. I mean, we haven't come up yet with the... Uh, you know, way of uh, quantifying that exactly. Because we would say, well, it doesn't make it how much money they have. The question is, are they a lover of money? And, uh, well, who knows? And so we just sort of throw, you know, most of the qualifications out the window. Uh, you know, I think a lot of things. You know, if we're mechanical and not God-centered, we just look at certain sort of external things and we rarely consider things that are more spiritual.
That'd be another example. But back to the Lord's Supper, though. Oh, okay. About, about yeah, the Lord's Supper. Uh, okay. that, that was actually what I was okay. trying to ask about. It didn't do that clearly. Okay. Uh, have you seen other things done? I mean, you talked about somebody talking ahead of time uh, about the Lord. Well, obviously that would be appropriate. Have you seen anything else that has made our coming together on the first day of the week really seemingly hit that on the head? In, in the way that, that you know the emphasis seems to be for our coming together? I mean I think I think we need to give a, a decent amount of time and attention to it. I mean if we're thinking of the Lord's Day in terms of we're coming together to remember Christ. And that's sort of the highlight for us. And that's kind of what we're what we're geared up for and what we're thinking about. It's kind of what we're anticipating. We express that in what we're saying. We, you know, in prayers perhaps, or in announcements or whatever, we, we're kind of anticipating that as a central element in why we've come together, maybe the central element. And we take time for it. You know, we take time to think about it. You know, I think it's, it's very helpful to me what we do in New Salisbury, you know, where somebody gets up and talks for a while about the Lord's Supper, just gets up in the pulpit and talks for maybe three minutes, maybe 13 minutes, you know, about the Lord's death, about the benefits of his death, something relating to the Lord. I mean, you know, preaches a mini-sermon about that. And uh, then we have a song. And then we have a couple of minutes of silence. Nobody does anything. And then it's the Lord's Supper served. And then we have another couple of minutes of silence. So it's helpful to me because it, it gives longer when my mind strays, I can call it back and still, you know, think. And, you know, often whoever spoke gave me something to think about. In fact, even, I think it's helpful there, and somebody does this better than churches where I've been, the people who give thanks for the bread and the cup. Rarely is that a stereotype prayer. Sometimes those are, you know, semi-lengthy prayers dealing with the Lord and his death and what he's done. We don't normally in those prayers get what I think is sort of inappropriate, you know, praying for the sick and the travelers and whatever. You know, it, they're focused on the Lord's death, but they're not just like one or two lines normally. They're normally a little bit more reflective. And so that's helpful too. I mean, you know, the more we can think about it, the more we can say things to each other, the more we can kind of gear up for it, the more meaningful it is. Other thoughts? Sort of going back to a previous bit of the topic was, I, there's a billboard that I drive past on a regular basis that says, it's a question, love Jesus but not the church? I mean, it's just, yeah. It's kind of an interesting uh, concept, I suppose. Well, yeah, you wonder what they mean, but uh, actually... <laughs> I think that's probably what I would, where I would stack up with most churches. <laughs> you know, uh, there's probably people I want to appeal to as people who have been turned off by what they've seen in their churches, but they do love Jesus. Now, if we love Jesus, tr certainly we will love his people. We must love his people, but what most people think about the church is the denominational hierarchy, and I can sure see why you wouldn't love that. And then another thing on the mentioning the name, I thought we often, <coughs> a lot of people do that today. You hear us identifying the false teaching by the person's name. Yes. You've fallen into the, the Kip Keen, you know, thing, or you're following the, or whoever it is, you know, some other name. Yes. Rather than some doctrine. Yes. And so in those situations, people don't even have a clear understanding of what is wrong. And they then just know the name. You also add the personality factor or the popularity factor. Yeah. Whether or not which side you're on. Yeah. Yeah. So it all depends on your attitude toward the person instead of toward the truth and toward the Lord. Right. Good point. Other thoughts on all this? There's a lot of stuff in here. 
Yeah, actually, we probably got a few things in there that weren't even in there. But, uh, <laughs> we're gifted at that. Not so. everybody can do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, I saw some rabbit tracks in there. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Just as long as they weren't myths, they're endless genealogies and they're specialists. Yeah. yeah. Well, we a little bit of other... Uh, other topics in First Timothy, but that I think that's what he's saying in three through seven, and I do think that is a significant uh, section for kind of setting the tone for the book. Uh, I think a lot of what he's going to say from here on out really goes back to the very purpose for leaving Timothy, and thus the purpose for Paul writing this this letter. So why don't we stop here then? And uh, that was uh, helpful. And the plan is, I'm not here next week. I'll be here two weeks from now, and then I'll be here sometime after Thanksgiving. All right, we're planning to go ahead and meet next Monday, so everybody is invited, and we will probably.